Next, this month's special series focus on neurology and psychiatry. Throughout this month, ReachMD welcomes an array of experts to explore developments in neuroscience and mental health. Schizophrenia first occurring in the teen years is associated with debilitating symptoms and a poor prognosis. Most clinicians assume that the second-generation antipsychotics are the safest and most efficacious treatments for this population. However, recent adult studies, such as the Katie trial, have made us rethink this position. What does the research say about treating psychosis in adolescents? Welcome to Focus on Psychiatry. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Lunt, and with me today is Dr. Robert Findling. Dr. Findling is the Rocco L. Motto, MD, Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and also the Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at University Hospitals at Case Medical Center. Dr. Findling's research endeavors have focused on pediatric psychopharmacology, and serious psychotic disorders in the young. He has been honored with numerous awards and has received both national and international recognition as a clinical investigator. Welcome to ReachMD. Really happy to be here. Dr. Findling, why are adolescents with schizophrenia such an important clinical population? Well, there's, I think, two key reasons. The first one is that this is a relatively common group of adolescents. For a long time, people did not think that teenagers could, in fact, suffer from schizophrenia, but there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that this condition that oftentimes begins in adulthood does, in fact, occur in adolescence. And in fact, about one-third of boys who develop schizophrenia do so during adolescence. The reason this is a particularly vital population is that they are a vulnerable population, knowing that these youngsters oftentimes have very poor prognoses. And really, for that reason, we really do need to know how to better treat and identify these mm. youngsters. So what treatment research had previously been done in this adolescent schizophrenic population? Well, until very recently, there really has been almost no studies of any scientific rigor. And so clinicians were often guess how best to treat people or, worse, use adult data to treat youngsters, which frequently is not really an effective way of giving kids the best care that they deserve. Now, you've been very active in studying this population. Why don't you tell us a bit about your work? Well, we do a lot of treatment research here, and so our work has oftentimes involved a variety of different forms of treatment. And at present, we really focus on really ways that we can help identify the best treatments for youngsters in ways that really help clinicians, families, and these youngsters make decisions that might be really most appropriate for them. Now, tell us about the aripiprazole study. The, the aripiprazole study was just recently published in the American Journal of Psychiatry, and it's a large, multi-site, multinational study that was supported by the pharmaceutical industry. I think what's particularly important about it is it's really the first large-scale study that really carefully evaluated the outcome of youngsters with schizophrenia who were given active medicine and comparing them to those who received placebo. Now, what it does is not only provide important results that help make clinicians really develop good treatment plans, but it also highlights the feasibility of large-scale industry-sponsored studies because these youngsters are oftentimes very difficult to identify and accurately really treat and enroll into studies so the fact that the study, in fact, was able to be accomplished and that clinically meaningful results came from it really all highlight the fact that 
these studies can be done even though they hadn't been done in the past. But there are some limitations, no? Oh, absolutely. One of the key issues for these kinds of studies is, first of all, it was a short-term study. Schizophrenia is a chronic condition, Mm -hmm. oftentimes associated with long-term treatment. And any of these medicines that are used to treat this condition are associated with possible long-term side effects. And so really only looking at short-term gives you at least some idea of what's going on, but really can't really provide insights into long-term safety. The other real issue is, ultimately, there are many other medicines out there. And when parents want to know why would you pick one medicine versus another and which one's best for my youngster, in the absence of any comparative work that really looks at one medicine versus another, you can't really get that from this study. Now, if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Robert Finling from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. We are discussing the current state of research on the use of antipsychotics in early-onset schizophrenia. So that brings us to the big study, the TO study, Treatment of Early-Onset Schizophrenia Spectrum Disorders. Tell us about that. Well, the TO study is to compare and contrast, first of all, a study that was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. And unlike the Arapiprazole study, the TIAS study specifically wanted to ask the question, how does one medicine stack up against another? And so in this study, there was no placebo, but in fact, youngsters were treated with one of three different medicines. And the key outcome was, how did they do across the different medicines? What we learned was one of the older medicines that, again, are oftentimes not given to youngsters, which is actually equally beneficial in reducing symptoms in this patient population as the newer medicines, the atypical antipsychotics. And that was really surprising to us because earlier data had suggested that, in fact, that might not be the case. So it really provided some very interesting information. And again, what it also did is highlight the feasibility of performing a different kind of treatment study in this very vulnerable population. And which of the older antipsychotics was this? This is a medicine called Molindone, or otherwise known as Moban. I should point out that this medicine was specifically selected because it appeared to have the least risk associated with weight gain, which is clearly a problematic side effect for some of the atypical antipsychotics. Mm -hmm. Now, what I should also point out, though, is that Everybody who received molindone in the study also received a prophylactic treatment with an anticholinergic medicine in order to reduce the risk of developing extrapyramidal side effects. So, again, it's important to realize that all youngsters who received molindone did not just receive molindone alone, but were also given adjunctive benztropine at the start of treatment. So the study looked at molindone versus which of the atypical antipsychotics? Risperidone was one of them, and the other one was olanzapine. And so these are, at the time the study was developed several years ago, the two most commonly prescribed antipsychotics in this patient population. Mm -hmm. And what we wanted to do is pick out something that was really going to be an important parameter. And the clear messages we were receiving about these first two atypical antipsychotics was that weight gain appeared to be really the Achilles heel of these compounds. Is that indeed what you found? Well, what we found was uh, not terribly surprising in some regard. The first thing we learned is that molindone, because it is an older medicine, and despite the fact that we used some prophylactic treatments, 
those youngsters had the greatest degree of difficulties with extrapyramidal side effects. Oh, even with cogentin? Even with cogentin. Huh. And the other interesting part is, again, symptom reduction was the same throughout. What was, I think, also important to point out is that the youngsters treated with olanzapine gained the most weight mm-hmm. and had the most perturbations in metabolic parameters that you would expect to occur with increases in weight. What I think particularly noteworthy was having done multiple studies that had been reviewed by data safety and monitoring boards before, this study actually had the olanzapine arm terminated prior to study completion by the data safety and monitoring board because of these findings, particularly related to the fact that although there was no benefit, the symptom reduction, the safety profile clearly looked different. So certainly one advantage of a longer study. Absolutely. And we actually are working up, we do have long-term data, we're working that up right now, again, because ultimately you're absolutely right. A key limitation to at least what we first disseminated, this only talks about the first eight weeks of treatment, and very few youngsters who have schizophrenia get treated for eight weeks. It's an ongoing chronic illness requiring chronic treatment. Clearly, that's where we're also going to really focus upon as well, mm-hmm. because safety matters so very much. Absolutely. Now, in the TO study, you actually looked at these kids for a, a year, didn't you? For some of these youngsters, could even look longer than that. Yeah. So for youngsters who, let's say, were not tolerating a certain treatment, we could re-randomize them to one of the other two different treatments, and they could be on that second treatment for up to a year. So we really try to keep on to these youngsters as long as possible to really get a sense of what happens to youngsters as they sort through different treatments mm-hmm. in order to really get a good handle on this population. And, you know, again, we understood how valuable and uncommon the research was prior to this. And we really wanted to learn as much as we could because ultimately this isn't really just about science. This is really about helping youngsters and helping families and physicians make really thoughtful evidence-based decisions together. What were the limitations of the TO study as you see it? Well, certainly the short-term piece is, I think, really quite vital. And I think ultimately, again, when we're talking about some of these medicines, not only are we really talking about concerns about metabolic issues that certainly are there for the atypicals, but now we're talking about molendone, which putatively has a greater risk for tardive dyskinesia over the long term. So in many ways, I think it's important to, I think, take what we've learned and really focus on what we have learned because, in fact, we really have changed how we think about the treatment of this patient population, particularly with regards to the old typical antipsychotics, but recognizing that there are certainly limitations, particularly due to the brevity of the study, and the fact that although very large, in comparison to what had been done previously, 116 youngsters, this is still small numbers compared to what we see with adult schizophrenia mm-hmm. studies. Can we take what you've learned from the TO study and apply it clinically? That is, should we dust off the molendone that's uh, <laughs> been in the recesses of our brains? I couldn't tell you how to dose it. I think if my life depended on it at this point. Should we dust off some of these old medicines and start using them again clinically? Or what else have we learned that we can apply tomorrow in the clinic? I think the first thing certainly is that I believe that based on what we can see, that the old typical antipsychotics, particularly those of medium potency or higher potency, when used and prescribed with prophylactic anticholinergic medicines, really may now have a role in the treatment of adolescents with schizophrenia. Certainly, I think it's important to make sure that we can really think about this. Certainly, we found that some youngsters did well with different medicines versus others. But overall, most kids didn't do that great in general. So we need new medicines. 
You certainly need to think about things differently. But I think the take-home messages really are is we still don't know which is the best treatment for which youngster, but we certainly do know that it should be brought to people's attention that the older medicines, in fact, may actually have a role for these youngsters in a way that we really perhaps forgot about. Where do you go next in terms of your research in this population? I think the next steps that really need to occur include, again, more comparative studies with other agents. Certainly, again, the other real issue that I think is really plaguing us is that there are a lot of youngsters who do well with some of the atypical antipsychotics, and yet they gain a lot of weight. Well, then let's say you have a youngster who's doing well with an atypical antipsychotic, and they've gained a lot of weight. There are many options that you can think about. Do you try to lower their weight by dietary interventions or behavioral interventions? Do you try prophylactic strategies before they gain weight? Do you switch them to a different medicine, though you run the risk of perhaps less clinical effectiveness and symptom reduction? So there's all these other things that really have to come into play that are still yet to be decided. And certainly, again, it's a shame that we don't have more long-term data because safety is certainly the key consideration in this class of medicines. With respect to individual response, is there work being done with pharmacogenomics in this population? Some of it is exploratory, but I'm not aware of any definitive avenues really that have been at least bearing fruit in the clinic at any time that I'm aware of. But certainly that would be a lovely idea, wouldn't it, to be able to take a look at a youngster and be able to identify the best medicine for the best patient. We're not even close, but I really wish we were. So it sounds like the bottom line is we shouldn't ignore the older medicines, but we do have to be mindful of safety, whether it's tardive dyskinesia with the older antipsychotics or weight gain and possible metabolic dysregulation with the newer? Yeah, I think that would be very well and succinctly put. And the only other thing I would probably advocate for is we need more research. But I think these first studies that are starting to come out now have really highlighted that they are feasible, they can be done, and that important information that helps people and helps youngsters' lives can be generated. And that wasn't even present five years ago. Mm -hmm. So we've come a long way, and I'd hate to have people be pessimistic about how much more we have to learn, recognizing how many large steps forward we've made as well. Absolutely. Well put. Well, thank you so much for being on our show today. Oh, it's a pleasure, and thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Dr. Robert Findling from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine about using antipsychotics in early schizophrenia. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to Focus on Psychiatry on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at our website, ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry. For downloadable podcasts of all the programs in this series, go to ReachMD.com and choose the series Focus on Neurology and Psychiatry.